This is a Broad Pods production. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Danny Riley. And I'm Dan Riley, and together we run Manamade. In this podcast, we have decided that we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into some of the things that mean more to us that we weren't able to share within the web series. We've got a little bit more time up our sleeves. We're going to have some killer guests in throughout the series, some amazing experts, and really talk about what's important to us on the journey to build our dream home. For Dan and I, building a home that was as sustainable as possible was our number one priority. So in each episode, we will also highlight these features as a standalone topic. We know that the most important part of a house is when it actually becomes your home. So in each episode of the pod, Dan and I will be giving you a sneak peek into these intimate spaces that made our house a home for us. Well, today we are joined by our building designer for the Blagari House Project, which I thought would be a very lovely wrap-up to the final reveal episode of the web series. So we have Sam from Bell House Design Office in today. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, he's featured on um, episode one of the web series. Uh, he's featured in a couple of episodes, yeah. Dan, yeah, now. Just, yeah. That was a long time ago. It was yes. a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's not highlight the fact that was so long ago now, but yes, it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, Sam, I'm going to kick off with a pretty hard-hitting question. Mm. There's a lot of confusion out there among uh, the general uh, consumer, so our clients basically, of the differences between an architect, a building designer, and a drafts person. Sure. And and what they do, basically. That is a tough question. (laughs) Uh, I'll do my best to answer it and look at a fairly high-level kind of approach, I guess. People would generally go to a draftsman for a fairly high-level service, they may have all their plans and ideas kind of predetermined and they're not necessarily needing that creative input from someone to perhaps utilise the site to its full potential. I'm not saying that draft people don't do that, but mm. generally speaking, it's the most time-efficient and cost-efficient way for people to get a house documented and get a building permit and a planning permit. Mm-hmm if they already have everything kind of predetermined. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the, the entry level for this whole process is generally a drafting studio or a draftsman. Um, I guess the midpoint is the building designer. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's where we, I guess that's our kind of where we fit into things. Mm-hmm. We're uh, registered building designers. Uh-huh. And we, I guess, approach the process similar to an architect. So our designs are generally unique and site-specific. So we're addressing all the site uh, kind of constraints that need to try and give us the best end result and most livable dwelling possible. Mm. Um, so that can take into consideration things like solar, 
access, uh, wind direction, and then building heights, shadowing, all those kind of things that can kind of drive the overall design. Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess, the initial kind of way we would approach the design. But then in terms of the documentation process, um, it's a higher level of documentation than what you would get from a draftsman. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything is generally tagged and scheduled. Mm -hmm. So then when the package finally goes to the builder for pricing, it should be all there and you can get a competitive price if you're going to tender or to um, negotiated offer. Mm. Yep. I feel like though there's such a a broad range of building designer. There there is. And and I think it goes, it's the same for draftsmen, it's the same for architects. Um, There's lots of grey areas between all three of these Mm -hmm. and um, every business approaches things differently. I guess what I've just explained there from a building designer point of view, that's how we approach it. But different building designers offer different services. And then I guess if you're going to an architect, um, you can expect all of that kind of site-specific response in terms of the design outcome. Generally, architects would demand a higher fee. And in turn for that higher fee, you probably get more research and development into materials and perhaps product selection and maybe even developing specific materials for the project but also they tend to actually offer a project management type role. Yes. Which mm-hmm. which sees you through that building stage and contract administration, mm-hmm. which um, is certainly of a benefit if you're the type of client that likes the hands-off approach mm. and doesn't really want to be bothered by the, I guess, unforeseen problems that arise on site, no matter mm-hmm. how well prepared you are, <laughs> they always occur. I mean, don't sell yourself short, Sam. You do all of these things. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, yeah, architects generally do offer that mm-hmm. full service and um, there is certainly a benefit in that for particular clients and also, you know, their level of experience. Um being a registered architect is a is a is a long course. Um, obviously, lots of study involved, and then actually getting registered is a quite a demanding process. So mm-hmm. they're also bringing that level of experience to the table. I think you made a good point there, Sam. Registration, mm. and that's even for yep. all boards, and that's something as a, a potential client you need to look at that. Yes, you do, and and I guess as a client, the building process is so uh, complicated, and mm. if you're not um, experienced, it's something that you would just expect your consultant to have, but it's not always the case. (laughs) And so whilst we're kind of talking about these key differences, I'd be very keen to understand from your perspective Mm. how the process might vary. Obviously, we know our internal process, whether that be from Bellhouse Design Office or Mm Manamade in conjunction with Bellhouse Design Office. So how does your process generally lay out to if someone was coming to you as a client and wanted to have their home designed? Sure. Well, I guess, as you know, Danny, it is a very long process. It can be. It can be. (laughs) And and there's many different factors which can contribute to the project length. Mm -hmm. But Generally speaking. Generally speaking. But I guess initial stages, so if we get contacted by a potential client, we would go out and meet with them on site. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's first and foremost to view the site specifics and see what constraints we're dealing with. Also to meet with the client face-to-face because it's really important to get that synergy between mm. us and the clients because yeah. it is a relationship that lasts over several months. It, or years. and mm. Or years, yeah, depending yeah. on the process. And we so, talk about relationships being one of those key pillars yeah. for everything that we yep. do. And I think if that synergy is right, it's certainly 
makes the project a lot smoother for everybody because there are times during a project where that relationship can be tested. Mm. And that's not through anyone's fault, but it is a stressful process. So having that I guess, you know, that synergy between us and the clients makes a big difference. So that's one of the main reasons to go out to site and meet the clients face to face, I guess. And that helps us also establish the client's brief. Um, Mm. We always get them to put their ideas forward um, through a questionnaire and, and try and build the brief. Meeting with them also allows us to tease out perhaps some more information, which you know, it doesn't come through in an email or Mm. we maybe get them to go in another direction that they haven't thought about yet. And that might kind of help, you know, fill out areas of the brief that they hadn't thought about yet or didn't know that was involved in the process. So I guess then if that all goes well, we would provide a fee proposal. If that's approved, we would then start the schematics. Let's talk about the Blair Gary House, the (laughs) the restrictions we had there. Well, that comes to also the planning controls on the site, yeah. Planning controls, yeah. I mean, Blair Gary House, that had pretty much... Everything we could ask for I or mean, not, not ask for. There was a lot there. There was a lot there. Should uh, we r- rattle them off? Do we remember? If Gordon Ramsay was going to come into our studio and look at the controls around the Blagari house, he would say, there's too many things on this menu. <laughs> Simplify <laughs> your menu. We, we had a real smorgasbord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, so we did. So from memory, we, we had a flood overlay. Yep. And that was over the, the front section of the site. So that controlled our front setback and how close we could build to the road. For those playing at home, we have no drainage in mm. the street. So yeah. we live on dirt roads. That's that's right. That was another one. Yep. And that flood overlay also determined our minimum ground floor building height. So yep. the floor level, the ground floor level had to be a certain height above the flood overlay. Yep. Mm. So that kind of set up the project because we were aiming for a double storey dwelling. Mm-hmm. So that kind of set everything up. We had to work from that going up. And then just to combat that, we also had a maximum building height that we had to contend with. <laughs> we so did. we really had to sandwich the dwelling in between these two kind of parameters, um, which was challenging and I think did somewhat drive the form. So I think mm. early kind of studies, we were looking at a pitched roof, mm. uh, kind of gable end barn type aesthetic, but these parameters kind of restricted that. So Mm. we looked at a flat roof and and kept the structure, I guess, as low as possible to get as much internal space as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I guess a couple of other things that we had to to deal with with Blair Gowrie was an existing planning permit. Yeah. And And how we could potentially utilise that to save time and money. So generally, if you purchase a property with planning permit, it can provide a less restrictive path through council if you are to amend that planning permit. And that doesn't mean just changing windows or changing a, a wall colour or something like that. It can be a full amendment by the way of a new design. Well, yeah, our whole house within is completely existing, different. Yeah, yeah, within the existing parameters that had been yep. set and agreed to. Yeah. Yep. So, yes. So we had we had some existing constraints that, I guess, set a precedent mm. for that planning permit. One was building heights, which we've already mm. spoken about. The other was site coverage, the footprint mm. of the dwelling materiality. I think that was another mm-hmm. one that we kind of had to abide by. And then side and rear setbacks. Yes, mm. that's that right. That was another yes. one that was that had to be considered. So even though we, we were trying to rely on that existing planning permit, it still proved a challenging process at council because they were, uh, I guess, quite conservative. And, and their view <laughs> on the development... A council planning department <laughs> was conservative? Mm. Uh, yeah, their, their view on the project was that... Um, it was not consistent with 
other developments in the area, which blows our mind. It does blow yeah. our mind, yeah. considering yeah. what else is around. But we also yeah. had a bushfire attack level that was quite high. Yep, we Indigenous had overlay. Indigenous plantings overlays. There are a number of things. I mean, once all of those existing conditions and, and whatnot are established, then moving into that schematic process, mm. what's next up? Well, generally, we like to, to start with a very kind of fluid approach, mm-hmm. and that's hand-sketching, mud-mapping, so taking... I guess, the the brief that we've developed with the client. Which I like to call our project Bible. Yes. (laughs) It's always a source to refer back to. Mm. And that may change, but... The basics remain the the same. The basics remain the same. If we break it down to absolute basics, so number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, key items like pool, no pool, double storey, single Mm storey. And then we start to put those ideas on paper. And what we find is keeping it fluid, it means that we don't rush ahead and then present something to the client that maybe they don't like or mm. perhaps they don't feel involved in the process. Mm. I feel like having this gets the client to feel like they're involved and it's not a final kind of concept and direction. Mm. It allows us to play with it. But also in many circumstances, it's the first time that the client has seen their brief, which a lot of people have thought about for a very long time in their head and got Pinterest boards and Instagram <laughs> accounts and things like that. It's the first time they've seen it on paper. Yeah. And, and for example, how much space that brief would take up in their backyard if yeah. they're doing an extension. Yeah. Um, so keeping it quite high level and, and um, that kind of schematic stage allows us to play with the plan more mm-hmm. if the client's got feedback. Um, so I guess that's that's kind of the, the initial kind of way that we would approach this stage. Mm-hmm. But once that's kind of been determined and we've reached a point where the Dan client's... Danny says, yep, Sam, that's yep, great. Yep, done. <laughs> um, then we would start developing that further. And that's when we would generally take the concept over to CAD, so 3D software, and build the model, develop the concept... And that's when the client can actually see the built form and get an idea of, you know, exterior materials and finishes and how high the building's going to be, what potential views they might have, Mm. all of those kind of things, which I guess is a real fun part of the process. In terms of the building design element, we feel like clients react really well to that and enjoy the process. Mm. And there's always a bit of refinement during that stage as well. But ultimately that kind of wraps up that kind of concept stage and then Normally, that's when we would hand the project over for to interiors and they can start coordinating their component as well. Yeah. Is it at this stage where um, we take them out to a big warehouse and they can actually walk through their plans so we, they can feel it in real size scale? It is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that not many other people offer. Yeah. Which is mm. you know, very important, I think, part and of the that process. Was, well, that was also very helpful for us when we were working through kind of preliminary designs with Blair Gowrie with mm. a, a a design we actually didn't end up proceeding Mm. with, um, being able to see the elevation or see it elevated on a wall at one-to-one scale and on the floor and physically walk through the house. It did prompt changes for us, I remember, in that one of those rounds. Yeah. I think that's that's a really good point, Dan, because for people like us who deal with plans every day... We see it. it We're used to it. It makes a lot of sense. But um, if that's not something that you're used to, it's a very hard thing to get a sense of scale... Or perhaps see, you know, the full direction just by looking at plans on mm. a piece of paper. Yeah. So being able to walk in your home, yeah, you know, in a factory, it's all just sort of mm. how do you explain it? It's projected, projected. On, onto the ground and onto the walls, so you can yep. kind of feel yep. how big every space is going to be. Yep. And I believe they've actually got some furniture there too that you can play around with. Yeah. Just they to do. Show yeah. Beds and it, it, yeah. So the furniture is it's a great addition because it gives you the sense of scale that yeah. you're used to. So for example. 
a king size bed mm. and they sit that in the bedroom and you can say, okay, well, I've got right. 1.5 metres either side of the bed still free and then yep. two metres between the head of the bed and the robe. Yep. So, yeah, it's, it's a really good tool. If that's something that people struggle with, yeah. I guess generally through our process, we offer that to the client. Some say yes, some say no, depending mm. on their understanding of the plans yeah. Yeah. and I guess if they've got any concerns or, or questions or they just want to do their due diligence mm. at that early stage. Mm. So let's let's go now down the path of probably the majority of our projects and uh-huh. I would suggest your projects as well, mm. um, town planning. So when there is a town planning component involved, it can be sometimes more straightforward, sometimes incredibly lengthy. We had a conversation actually just yesterday about a project that we're working in collaboration with each other and you were saying it's the largest town planning submission that you've ever had to do. Yes. And this is to City of Melbourne. Yep. I know the project. (laughs) City of Melbourne. So give us a bit of a a snapshot overview of what that planning process can can involve. It's a tricky one and I think it's something that we struggle with all the time Mm. because um, you'd think just being within Melbourne and surrounding suburbs that most sites would have the same kind of overlays and challenges, but um, it's not the case. Mm-hmm. And council, well, they, they vary from council to council. So there's the overarching planning policy, which we need to abide by when we're designing a new dwelling or an addition or, or whatever the scope of works is. Which, believe it or not, we have worked with architects in the past that baseline don't comply with those particular things before we even get through so to the next code, stage. residential code. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be problematic. Um, <laughs> very. <laughs> I'm, I'm not... You're very generous there in your... <laughs> yeah. um, I guess there, there are ways around that by way of dispensations, but... <laughs> but let's say it's a perfect world and we're going to council and yep. everything is within res code. Mm-hmm. Then what we would be looking at is the the local or the overlays that are specific to that site. Yep. And another, like a really good example is a heritage overlay. Yep. So that can really drive many factors in terms of the design outcome. And I think we've got a joint project in Clifton Hill, which has a heritage overlay. Mm-hmm. That project should have been, in my opinion, fairly <laughs> straightforward based yep. on the precedent that was set mm. in the surrounding area. Mm-hmm. But that's been a real challenge. And that was mainly driven from the heritage overlay that was applied to the site. Which we just got an endorsed permit recently for and we're very excited to be moving into uh, design development and construction documentation. Yeah, that was a nice early Christmas present. It was. So planning sounds like it can be an absolute pain in the bum for everyone. Is there any tips that we can get through planning quicker? Can we employ someone else in that field? Because as I know, we've been stuck on a project for two years in planning. Mm which has cost the client hundreds of thousands of dollars? It's a good question, Dan. I guess there's no magical answer for that. I think the best or the the approach that we take, which I guess was uh, born out of necessity and certain scenarios like the one we've just discussed, Mm. is to engage a planning consultant and someone who's extremely experienced uh, with local policy. And I guess the, the process that we use is to, before we've even put pen to paper, once the client has signed up, we would speak to that planning consultant and they prepare a detailed planning audit, which highlights any key items that we absolutely need to abide by. Tick the box. Because that's the goal. We don't want to be challenging. Yeah. And yeah. we actually did that at the Blair Gary House from memory. We, we, we employed a planning person. That was also to get the project through much quicker as well. But it worked. So you outlay... And then know, we changed the design two or three did, times yeah. more. Yeah. But yeah. you outlay the five grand at the start, six grand. It might sound like a lot of money, but you get stuck in council for one or two years. 
exactly. industry's gone up 30 40%. It's costing you hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that's right. that initial investment yep. can save you in the long run, and that's something everyone should really think about. So I guess our, our kind of main goal, I guess our job is to get the client a planning permit. Yeah. And I guess, as I said before, there's no perfect recipe for doing that, mm. but what we can do is give ourselves and the clients the best chance of doing that, and that's all that additional work before we even put that pen to paper to make sure that we're putting our best foot forward and yeah. removing as many roadblocks as we can. And this is a key point for everyone out there, a potential client or whoever's seeking a building. There are so many roadblocks and you'd think in Australia there shouldn't be, but there are so many. Probably and more then, so than any other country. It would be more yeah. so than any other country. But then we've got the individual councils. Mm. But then within councils, we've got individuals in the same council who probably disagree with each other. Mm. So it could or be the luck of the draw. Or their interpretation of something is different. Yeah. So it all comes down to the luck of the person who's looking over your planning permit to, at the end of the day. It, it does. And, and if there's something picked up, they'll send it back to you yes. for more information. That, that's And right. then you respond and we go to the bottom of the pile. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. when everyone says, why is this taking so long? Mm. <laughs> this is why it takes so long. That's anyway, right. let's skip through it. Say we've presented the best outcome, path of least resistance. Yes, we permit. love your plans. Stamp. We're moving into design development. That's great. Um, <laughs> so I guess just to quickly recap, so we've, we've done our concept. Yep. Um, that's been developed into our town planning package, yep. which has got more detail in the plans. Um, so generally speaking, you know, materials and finishes are suggested or chosen, but it's not a set that the builder can then take and build from. Yeah. So the next stage for us is design development, and that is taking the town planning package and developing a set of plans which can then be sent out to relevant consultants. So key one, for example, is structural engineer. Mm. So within that design development set of plans, we would show our construction intent. Um, so, for example, concrete slab, um, any steelwork, mm trusses or rafters in the in the roof structure. And then that would get sent out to the structural engineer. They would develop their own preliminary set of plans. And then there's an element of coordination between us and the structural engineer. And generally that goes back and forth a couple of times to achieve a design outcome that one, we're happy with and also that they're happy with because we need to be able to oversee the end result. And if the structural engineer comes to us and says, um, we want to put a steel you know, column in the middle of the room. Exactly. That's that's not a good outcome. Um, so there's a lot of workshopping like that, generally speaking, and it's not just the structural engineer. There's other consultants mm. at this stage, but it's very much a collaborative process between us, consultants, and the client because, you know, a lot of clients like to be able to oversee that process. And the builder, I would and say, as builder. well. You yeah. know, we have had a direct situation where we felt that something could have been done for much less money yep. had it been engineered a different way. Yes. And we have initiated that yep. as a process and saved thousands of dollars, hundreds of hours. It's a very good value add if, yep. if you've got the luxury of having your builder engaged or available mm. at that design development stage as opposed yep. to waiting and taking the project to tender yep. um, where you don't have them to call on. This episode is powered by the very clever Sleepmaker Cool Coat Pillows and Mattresses. I don't know about you, but I love my sleep. But that can be really hard when you share a bed with someone who gets hot, like Dan, and I'm always the cold one. But the Sleepmaker Cool Coat Pillows and Mattresses are infused with temperature-reactive microcapsules designed to keep your body heat consistent throughout the night. It's the best. 
Find the Cool Coat range at sleepmaker.com.au. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So then what happens moving into construction, Doc? So I guess we're, we're taking all of that additional information from the external consultants and I guess bringing that back into our plans to create the final set. Now that can be additional detailing or final material selection and starting that conversation or sorry, continuing that conversation with the building surveyor. And that's in terms of the building permit and the construction, it's kind of the final hurdle that we need to jump over before you can start building. Mm. Um, yeah. And satisfying a building surveyor is challenging. Like town planning, mm. building regulations are extremely detailed and um, can be site-specific mm. and it can be a, a difficult process. But again, having a relationship, my recommendation would be that using a building surveyor that has a relationship with either your assigned or your appointed builder mm-hmm. or your building designer, draftsman or architect mm-hmm. yep. is a massive value add to the project because yep. having those existing relationships just speaks volumes. And in my experience, it allows you to workshop problems as opposed to mm-hmm. yes. just taking things on face value based on an RFI in yep. an email. So yep. Absolutely. again, it gets a Which better... Which for those playing at home is sorry. a response for further information. <laughs> um, yeah. it, what it means is it's a it's a better outcome for the client. Yeah. Yep. But the best news out there is you get to choose your building surveyor. So no longer can the builder choose the building surveyor. Or appoint. On, or appoint, yep. yes. The client has to appoint the building surveyor. We can recommend, mm-hmm. yep. but that's all we can do. And why do we need a building surveyor? Well, it's someone that looks over not only the plans and make sure they're compliant, but they check over the builder mm. and the trades and they make sure that that work is compliant. Because, yes, the builder should be doing that, but there's just one more layer above that. Mm. Yep. And for the client, that's very beneficial. And I would have to say, working through the final inspection and certification process for the Blagari project is by far the biggest permit we've needed to, or or inspection we've needed to satisfy. The volume of documentation, the number of certificates, it was a huge, huge, huge process. Many, many hours went into that. So once you've got your building permit, you've satisfied any requests for further information, you've done all that, you're breaking ground, there's then that kind of ongoing project support element, which you know, we've, we've touched Very on important. earlier on in a different episode of the pod, we went through the interior design process that we have within our business. And you can see, Dan, how the two processes completely align mm. and they they are generally the same. Um, just one is building and one is interior, basically. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the project support element is, it's critical yeah. in, in my opinion. I guess as an example, Dan, with the shared project that we've got at the moment, which is currently under construction, mm-hmm. was a 100-year-old Edwardian house and we're doing alterations and additions to. When you're dealing with old structures, there's <laughs> always unforeseen. What? <laughs> so many. <laughs> um, Someone asked us yesterday, do you prefer renovating or building new? Dan's like, oh, 
love the challenge of a renovation. <laughs> like, I don't have the budget. <laughs> this was a perfect scenario. So mm. you can do as much planning and due diligence as you as you want, but until you start pulling an old structure apart, mm-hmm. you don't know what's underneath, and this mm-hmm. was what happened on our current project. Yep. So there were items that we hadn't allowed for and the structural engineer hadn't allowed for mm. and the build team hadn't allowed for. Mm. So we had to go out on site, workshop it, do some sketches on site, go back, liaise with the structural engineer, liaise with the builder and achieve an outcome that didn't compromise the design no. and I guess minimised any costs. And didn't add dollar signs. Didn't exactly. dollar signs. But, yeah. Yeah. but this is the importance of having relationships mm. yeah. within the industry because we, we got it done pretty quickly too. We did. We did. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I guess there was no compromise, which, mm. yeah, I guess we're all very happy with. Yeah, we yeah. do encourage obviously clients and anyone involved. There, there has to be a level of flexibility in a process like this. But compromising is something you really shouldn't be having to do. So yes, it is. Uh, I love that word about not having to compromise mm. on this one. The process is is very very intense and can be long um, and obviously depending on the scale of the project can be extremely detailed. So the process is obviously very, very in-depth and it can take a quite considerable amount of time depending the challenges and and other complexities within it. With the Blagari project in particular, you were obviously our building designer on the project. When we, I guess, redesigned the home that we've eventuated, what were some of those key brief elements that were more challenging in that kind of early concept stage? I guess the the things that were challenging were those site constraints that we Mm -hmm. discussed earlier. But I guess there were a couple of drivers within your brief which pushed us in a certain direction, one being your desire to have a separate home office, something that is accessible um, if clients are come to come to the home, mm-hmm. um, and they don't have to walk through the whole house to get to the meeting space. So yeah. that was a big one. And, and we used that kind of area of the brief to drive the location of that office. So that had to be next to the entry. Mm-hmm. So you've got that short path of travel between where clients would arrive and then come and meet. And also the sloping site lent itself very well to that mm. because when you're dealing with a sloping site, I guess it limits your amount of lower ground level. Yeah. So we utilise that lower ground level for the office space and then general utilities. So laundry, mud room, yep. powder room, Garage. Um, and then vehicle accommodation. Mm. And that lower level footprint, I guess, kind of gave us the, the ability to then build on top of that and create that double story element whilst minimising the overall footprint on the site it was the most efficient kind of approach that we could mm. come up with to manage the building height, utilise the slope. We also had maximum site, site cut allowances, didn't we? Did. We did. Yes. Mm. Yep. So that was another challenge and a sandy site, which was another challenge. Challenge. So much on this menu. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that was kind of the, I guess, the first kind of stepping stone that kind of set out the rest of the dwelling because mm-hmm. that created that separate office, utility space, and then all of the key spaces where you spend most of your time was upstairs, which had better solar access, had Mm -hmm. amazing views out into the existing green spaces, and then was able to transition directly into the external spaces. So you're not having that big kind of step down into the space. Um, When we're trying to get the budget down a little bit, and I said... (laughs) Sam, we can't have any more box gutters. Try and limit just one box gutter. That's right, So you had to redo all the roof, all the falls. Yep. 
put oh, some gutters are? here and there to, that are quite discreet now. Very discreet. But that was a yeah. that was a really good outcome that you delivered for us, and we saved a lot of money there. We looked at the project in what were the things that were minor to, to a degree that would get us the most amount of savings mm. that would have the least That's impact. Right. Yep. Yeah. And I think I'm not saying that happens across every project, but that is quite typical. Mm. And it, it's certainly a discussion that we have with clients and, you know, going through that value management process if it's required. Mm. It generally does create a bit of a shopping list. And you, If you, it's required. <laughs> I'm trying joke? to be positive. <laughs> um, Building costs have gone up 40%. Yeah. Margin, so that's if fun. it's required. <laughs> but yeah, we look at those options and, and look at the, the positives and negatives mm. of maybe retaining something. If we are looking at a different, uh, different option, what outcome does that give us? Mm. And I guess ultimately that goes back to the client. As long as we explain what that altered outcome would be, mm-hmm. they can make an educated decision on whether they perhaps want to spend more money and stick with the original plan or yep. they want to adopt the value-managed option. Yeah. And that's what we did at Blair Gary. It was good. A, yeah. a common one that we always seem to have in the inner city of Melbourne too is these mm. existing fireplaces and to create larger rooms, we've got to keep the existing chimney stack. Yeah. Yep. We've got to, in, you know, install a lot of steel work to support that. Yep. And sometimes the client will say, just leave it or maybe get rid of one and keep the other. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's all part of the value management process. Yeah. And that's yeah. just quickly reverting back to the concept. We want to put together the client's ideal scenario. Yes. yes. So. And this is a conversation we have with clients. You know, yeah. our, our concept that we present to you is your ideal scenario that you have communicated you want yep. from us. Yep. However. Yeah. Some, <laughs> we, we have to, I guess, play the bad cop and, yep. and say, look, yes, we can do that, but that's going to push you over budget. Yeah. Or this is a, a workaround. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a fairly fairly common occurrence. Yeah. Yeah, so Sam, you know, we know ways to save money within the building structure. Can you give us a few examples for our listeners out there on, on how they could potentially save some dollars here and there? Dan loves to put our guests on the spot. Okay, yeah, great. Sorry, mate. <laughs> well, I think let's go back to Blair Gary House. So mm. I think aside from that, you know, reducing number of box gutters, we also looked at uh, switching out cladding, external cladding mm. on the southern side of the home because it's not something that is visible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a services side. It's not a prominent, um, you know, elevation of the dwelling that you see from the street or the key entertaining areas. Yeah. And there was quite a lot of wall space there. Oh, well, I know. I painted it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although it would have been nice to continue, you know, the hardwood cladding. Mm. It wasn't necessary. It's not necessary. Mm. And as a value add, it's going to require less maintenance. So. Yeah. When that time comes around where you do need to re-oil, re-oil because mm. it's a natural product, we're not needing to do that side. Yeah. So, so material selection yeah. in certain areas can save, you can it's save money. Being it's flexible. A, it's a big one. Would yeah. you say, Sam, also with our particular property, a lot of the cost was contained because we kept a simple form? Just before that, explain what that simple is. Is it like squares, rectangles? Well, no curves. Is no, this what we're talking? All of the above. We're, I'm just trying to articulate <laughs> to the people out there. We're we're talking. Yeah, curves is a is a good one. Yeah. Um. Everyone loves curves, but they do add costs. Oh yeah. Yeah. And whether that's within the actual building envelope, so the structure, or whether it you know is just in the interiors, there is an added layer of complexity there that demands a high price. But if we're going back to design 101, essentially a square box yep. is 
the cheapest. Yeah. Um, so minimal articulation, no overhangs, mm. um, simple forms, which if drawn correctly and detailed can actually be the best outcome. Yeah. Um, I mean, look at Blair Gary. Blair Gary We're in a long, narrow yeah. site. We had limited options Definitely. around the design and layout of the home. Yep. Long, linear lines is what we really got. Yeah. Yep. And I think if we're kind of applying those simple forms, it does create a bit more of a timeless mm. aesthetic, exactly. I think. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, yeah, things like curves are, are amazing. But, <laughs> but we introduced interest into a fairly... Uh, linear structure through texture. Definitely. So it's not all about having yep. curves and whatever it might be. It's just creating interest in other ways. That's right. Yeah, and detailing, material selection. And the windows, the outlook, all of that kind of stuff that brings that exactly softness, right. softness in. Mm. Exactly right. Yep. Well, before I let you go, Sam, I have a question for you. Um, Dan and I have had a constant uh, little mini segment throughout this podcast series about what makes this house a home for us. And I wanted to ask you, on reflection of the project and now the finished home, what you feel the most successful element, whether it be space, um, material, whatever it is, what you feel the most successful element is of the home? I've got a few things. <laughs> one. Um, one. You get one. <laughs> the thing that I love about the end result is no matter which room you're standing in, inside, you're looking out to green space. Even though you're in an area that is suburban block, essentially, mm. yep. it feels very private and secluded. Mm. Even though once you step outside the dwelling, you can quickly see that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So I think that's been a really nice design outcome and the, the design lends itself well to framing those spaces yeah. when you're inside looking out. Yeah. Totally agree with that. What about you, Dan? I'm agreeing with that. You're agreeing with the green yeah. space? I'm going to say... It's actually take me back to episode eight with um, the building biologist too about bringing the outside environment in yes. to clean your house. Yes. And that's what Sam's done with all the windows and the cross-flow ventilation. Those windows are always that. filthy, but I, I <laughs> yeah, get where yeah, you're yeah, going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say the thing that I feel at home most about this house is literally driving up the street. I drive up the dirt road, I stop, I press the button for the gate, and it gives me a second to kind of sit back and take how the home actually is in, in its external hmm. form. And it's always generally on dusk that I'm doing that as well. So the garden lighting is is on, the landscaping is starting to really mature and it just feels so beautiful and soft and even though it's not a soft structure, it just feels that way. It feels like Definitely. it should be there. Yeah, yep. yeah, and yep. it, it just feels like I'm coming home. Yeah, that's great. Nice. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sam. Thank you for being involved in this project. Thank Thanks you for coming on. again. My pleasure. My pleasure. Look forward to many projects in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We've absolutely loved sharing the making of our beautiful home with you and hope that we've been able to share some nuggets and maybe even a little bit of inspiration for you to use in your own project. What's next for us? Well, you can keep up to date via Instagram and, of course, on our website, manamade.com.au. There'll definitely be another project on the horizon soon. 
So as we settle into our beautiful Blair Gowrie home, thanks again to Sleep Maker Cool Coat for powering this episode and for giving us a great night's sleep. Their Cool Coat pillows and mattresses are infused with temperature-reactive microcapsules that absorb excess heat energy, store it, and then release it back when needed, all helping manage temperature and keeping you more comfortable in bed. Find the Cool Coat range at sleepmaker.com.au.